This is Pendust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Adrian's Affinity is a lush and lyrical story about a sensitive and intelligent boy with a special affinity. He can attract birds. It's not a power because he can't control it, and it's not an ability he wants, as it makes others, even his own mother, suspicious of him. Both a bittersweet coming-of-age tale and a haunting mystery, this compelling and original story reminds us that we are all shaped by beautiful and mysterious forces as we struggle to fit in and understand ourselves. Dea Bahatacharya is a freelance writer and former business development manager from Bangalore, India. She started writing fiction during the COVID-19 lockdown. Adrian's Affinity, written by Dea Bahatacharya, read by Siphon Williams and A.J. Ferraro. Birds of an unknown species had gathered upon the lawn. They were decked alike in red and gold plumage. Their beaks, curved and pointed, were twice the size of their heads. Their appearance evoked in him a vague disquiet, as though he had eaten too many strawberries for tea. One of them opened its beak to fish out a passing fly, snap, and have it whole. Adrian, your piano practice called his mother again from inside. It was the 4th of June. I've been waiting for ten minutes, Adrian. Didn't you know I was coming? I didn't hear you come in. But your mother called you, Adrian. She called you three or four times. I didn't hear her. You know it's your practice time, Adrian. I come every Tuesday and Thursday at five. Honest to God, Miss Janice, I didn't hear you come in. I was outside. I'm sorry I kept you waiting. She closed her eyes and let out a sigh. Don't invoke the Lord's name in vain, Adrian. All right, let's hear you play the Moonlight Sonata. His fingers, slender through the middle and lumpy at the tips, moved over the keys. Not quite, she said. You're scrunching your little finger again. You need to use it. Here, let me show you. Stretching her hand out, she played the section, faultlessly and without character. Try 
try just these four bars, Adrian. I showed you how to do them last time. Try again. One, two, three. One, two, three. He could see his mother watching out of the corner of his eye, framed in the doorway like a blurred movie. She was wearing the yellow dress that always made her look thinner, bonier. Out of deference for her, he paid a little more attention and played the next sixteen bars without faltering. That's good, Adrian. That's very good," said Miss Janice approvingly. He withdrew his hands and wiped them on his trouser thighs. When he turned back, the doorway was empty. I used to listen to your mother's version of this all the time," Miss Janice was saying. "It was part of a volume of short pieces: Chopin, Liszt, Debussy, Beethoven, Rachmaninoff. Oh, how her fingers moved! Light as air." She was one of the reasons I started playing myself. Her eyes were bright, almost misty. She looked at Adrian and smiled. Who would have thought I'd end up teaching her son one day? There was a church tea that evening that his mother made him attend. She wore her hair up as always, nodding to the pastor and the pastor's wife, and scanning the crowd for something or someone. Playing in the background was a piano piece that sounded like Christmas music. Before every function of even minor importance, the town committee's chairwoman would visit to ask Adrian's mother if she would play a tune, just a simple one. Each time, his mother would smile and hold up her hands, the opposite of Adrian's, slender at the tips and bent, swollen at the joints, and say, "Maybe next time." But she could not render piano pieces with delicacy and precision. Or would not. What was the difference? Someone offered them a plate of pastries, but his mother waved them away. She walked over to a man who appeared to have been waiting for her. He was tallish, red-haired, and not much more than forty. Adrian looked at the man and had a sudden desire to be useful. Clearing his throat, he went up to his mother and offered to get the week's supplies from the supermarket. His mother did not respond. She was listening to something the man was saying about English roses. Shall I go? Adrian asked again. Oh God! Take it away! Someone shrieked. Heads turned towards the picnic table at the end of the room, where the shriek came from. The window behind the table was open, and a pigeon had flown in. It settled itself on the cake tray on which it was now dining. Volunteers moved up and shooed it out, and the woman who had spotted it was poured another cup of tea. They were starting to look at Adrian now, the man as well, and he decided to leave while he could. At the supermarket, Adrian saw two of his classmates from school. They were quick to look away as he met their gaze. The adult with them shot him a nervous glance before propelling the classmates ahead. Adrian continued to fill his basket, tipping cans and bottles into it with clenched teeth and a buzzing mind. There was nothing inherently wrong with birds, he thought. It wasn't like they hurt anybody. Some might even call it a gift to attract them the way he did. And yet, no one else in town could do it, which meant that something was off. It had to be. And it wasn't just the pigeons and crows. There were also the other birds, the ones that appeared on their own or in concert, strange birds with oddly coloured plumage, which no bird book could name. That such birds could exist in nature was not improbable, 
but that they would show up here in this town was peculiar, alarming even. A century ago, Adrian's unusual affinity would have been enough to get him hanged for witchcraft. Today, the assault took the form of sidelong glances, a general lack of cordiality, and sometimes the occasional ineffectual pelting with stones, as the Carter kids were doing now as he left the supermarket. They were easy to spot, twin brothers. Their red hair was like blisters sprouting behind bin lids. Birdman, birdman, they chanted behind him as he walked on without bothering to dodge their stones. When he arrived at the corner of his street, at least thirty crows and sparrows were lined up in rows, motionless except for the occasional twitch of a wing. You make it hard to not hate you, you know, he said to them. They stared back without responding. At his next piano lesson, he kept his mind on the chords and his eyes on the keys and played the whole of Satie's Gymnopédie, one with only three mistakes. Miss Janice beamed at him. That's wonderful, Adrian. See what you can do when you try. Sounds ensued from the kitchen as his mother prepared dinner. Chop, 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 whizz, chop, chop, chop. Miss Janice was rummaging through the cloth bag she always carried, lumpy with things she never took out. Her dress was high-collared and smocked at the sleeves, vicar-like in its tight blackness. On practice days, she either wore this one or the paisley dress with the puffed sleeves. Elsewhere, she wore jeans. Would you play me something, Miss Janice? She looked up at him, the flush of pleasure evident on her face. At the piano, she kept her fingers hovering for a good few minutes before coming down forcefully on a minor chord. There was a pause, and then she launched into something that seemed to lack rhythm and motif entirely. It was familiar in a far-off way, as though he had heard it long ago and digested it well enough to feel faintly stirred, as he was now. Outside, the kitchen seemed to quiet down. And as if in response, Miss Janice began playing louder and faster. Her lips pressed and her brow furrowed. Glancing outside, Adrian noticed a flock of sparrows on the lawn, watching him through the window. Go away! He tried thinking in their direction. They did not move. It seemed a silly affinity to have if he couldn't communicate with them. There was a running together of chords, an extended, triumphant coda, then silence throughout the house. She lifted her hands from the keys and sucked in a breath, blinking rapidly. The blender began whizzing at top speed, and she exhaled, a shadow contorting her face, but disappearing almost at once as she turned expectantly towards Adrian. I loved it, he said on cue. It was only after she left that he recognized the piece as Liszt's piano sonata in B minor. He remembered it from the night in London when his mother had played it, tautly and furiously, until the lid came down. The first time had been eight years ago when Adrian had gone with his kindergarten class to a picnic at a nearby beach. He had wandered off from the group to follow a pair of hermit crabs into a rock pool when he saw it. The eyes were what struck him first, pupilless and set deep in a grey face that looked something like an owl's, but was different without his knowing how. It cried at him, 
a thin, soulless cry, and he reached a hand out to stroke the speckled beak, large enough to tear through lobsters. When he looked up, the sky had grown darker. He retraced his steps to the group and found them frantic, but not about him. The Raleigh sisters had waded too far out to sea and nearly drowned. They were on the sand now, the teacher wringing her hands and pumping the water out of them by turns. They were saved, but narrowly. The second time had been a year later. He was hiding in a clump of trees at the bottom of the school garden on the run from a bully. There had been a rustling behind him, and he turned to see a duck-like bird with purple feathers and jade-green eyes. He had been scared then. He almost cried out. But he battled to keep the cry balled up in his throat. The bird scuttled off on clawed feet. When he came out again, a teacher had turned up and was leading the bully back into the school by the ear. The seventh time had been two years ago at Christmas, when he went out after dinner for a walk. A blue and white bird, the size of a turkey, had blocked his path. This time he was bolder. He stepped forward and crouched so that the bird was at eye level. Do you have something for me? He asked. The bird tilted its head to one side and let out a caw, <coughs> scoff-like and high-pitched. He reached his hand out, only for the bird to turn and strut off toward a clump of bushes on the left. After a faint rustle, it slipped into the nearest bush as if there had been no sight or sound of it. Twelve hours later, his father vanished. This was not entirely a shock, and that the tattooed twenty-something cafeteria owner would also vanish was no shock either. Soon after the vanishing, the piano lessons began. Two years on, and Adrian had gotten little past the basics. Miss Janice still had to stop him every few bars to re-demonstrate the right way to play each piece. Yet his mother kept the lessons going, and he kept up the pretense of learning. His mother knew about the birds, everyone did, but she chose not to speak to him about it. Not when his father left, or ever after. It was like an agreement between them, his playing for her silence. And Miss Janice, who had gotten her music credentials from an online academy and worked part-time as a paralegal, was glad enough to keep showing up at her idol's house for a monthly check. As Adrian went up to his room that night, he wondered why the redbirds on the lawn had shown up the other day. One of his great-aunts in London had been hospitalized two nights ago, but she was eighty and asthmatic. Wouldn't she have been hospitalized anyway? The travelling fair was in town. It had been the same since Adrian's mother's school days, undaunted by technology or time. There were the coconut shies, cheap rides, snack stalls, and lucky dips. Over by the grilled cheese stand, he saw a tent with a sign that read "Fortunes Told." He paid his fare and went inside. The woman behind the crystal ball wore her hair in beaded dreadlocks, and her bat-sleeved gown was plastered with gold stars. "You're not a believer, I see," she said as he entered. "Sit down." The crystal ball looked like any ordinary glass sphere and was streaked with dirt. She asked him to close his eyes and count slowly to ten. When he opened them again, the crystal ball was full of smoke. The patterns in the smoke hold the answers to what you seek, she said. Where does the smoke come from? He asked, dropping to his knees and lifting the tablecloth. 
That won't work, you know, she said. In here, the occult makes things happen. It isn't corporeal smoke. Technically, smoke isn't corporeal. Technically, she agreed. But it comes from a flammable source which you can touch. This smoke doesn't. Why don't you let me tell your fortune if you don't have any questions of your own? I suppose I should get my money's worth, he said as he resumed his seat. The fortune teller placed her hands on the crystal ball. I see struggle, plenty of it. You're unpopular at school. That's no secret, he said. I'm not from around here. I wouldn't know, she said. I see that you have a special talent, something not many people understand. You don't understand it yourself. What kind of talent? He challenged her. She shrugged. Not the regular kind. It's something supernatural. In other words, you haven't a clue. She didn't respond. She stared into the crystal ball and leaned forward slightly. A few seconds later, she looked up at him with mild interest in her eyes. You're not a pervert, are you? Not that I can recall. Well, it says here that you're about to break a woman's heart in a particularly vicious way. I don't mean to be rude, Adrian said, getting up. But you didn't tell me anything that I wanted to know. Perhaps, she said, as she drew the curtain apart for him to exit. But it didn't look as though you know what you wanted yourself. Adrian spotted her on the street next to his, in the crook of a tree. It was her head that he noticed first, a smooth golf ball-sized head, the color of turmeric, and set off by tiny black eyes and a half-open orange beak. Her body was about the size of a crow, but brown and white, and with a long tail. Her left wing was bent painfully in half, the feathers ragged at the edge. He crossed the street and looked up at the bird. She looked back at him with unwavering eyes. He named her Hazel. She learned to respond to him soon enough, hopping to him when he beckoned with a piece of seeded bread or a handful of nuts. He would stand outside the hollow of the cedar tree where she had made a home and called her by her name. Hazel, he whispered slowly. Their eyes locked, the bond between them like a heartbeat. He brought her meals every morning and evening, and let her perch along his arm as she pecked at the food. Her orange beak opened and closed with quick, polite little sounds, like the tapping of high heels. By the end of the week, her wing had healed, but she showed no inclination to fly, and he didn't press her. Once she had eaten, he would sit down under the tree, and she would hop onto the grass, and they would look at the sky and say nothing. Sometimes the crows and sparrows would join them. Sometimes they would wait a little further off, watching the pair as they watched the sun. Hazel herself would ignore them until the sun had set and it was time to go back in. She would perch at the rim of the hollow and tilt her head towards them, and they, as though waiting for her signal, would raise their wings with one accord and fly off into the night. She learned to expect Adrian at certain times. On the days he came late. She looked at him with clear reproach and refused the food at first. He would have to stroke her head and feathers over and over, gently and regretfully, until her eyes grew soft again. When Adrian got back inside, his mother caught hold of his shoulder and pushed him upstairs. Go change into something decent. We're having guests. The guests were the man his mother had been talking to at the church tea, 
and a girl a year or two younger than Adrian. I'm Missy. She introduced herself without smiling. Go take Missy outside to play, Adrian. His mother said. She was wearing lipstick, a darker shade than usual, and had a pair of ivory chopsticks in her bun. Missy followed him at a languid pace and walked through the door he held open for her without acknowledgement. She was pretty in the self-assured fashion of thirteen-year-olds, and her blonde hair was tied back in Dutch braids fastened with bows. Ignoring him, she sat upon a stone and examined her nails. Do you like my nail polish? She said presently, holding her hand out to him. I don't see anything. It's transparent. She said patiently. Oh. He looked again at the nails, colourless except for specks of white at the base. It's very nice. She got up and moved towards him. What are you doing with yourself these holidays? The same as always, really. What does that mean? Just taking walks, maybe going for a swim in the lake. Do you like music? Some kinds. I saw a piano in the room next to the living room. Do you play? He paused. My mother used to play. Used to? She had an accident. What kind of accident? She asked with quickened interest. She was playing a concert in London, a Liszt piece, the piano sonata in B minor. About five minutes from the end, the piano lid came crashing down on her hands. It broke three bones in one hand and two bones in the other. They took a while to heal fully, but she couldn't play the same way ever again, so she stopped. It was the first time he had ever spoken of it to anyone else. Missy looked at him curiously, half admiringly. Were you there? Yes, but I was only four. So, who plays the piano now? No one really. Missy appeared to consider this for a while before shrugging it off. The sun had started to drop. She shifted her weight from one foot to the other and yawned. From inside the house, a male laugh ensued. She moved a little closer to Adrian. My father likes your mother a lot. That there was meaning in what she said was evident. Yet instinct told him to avoid the bait. He said nothing. He likes her a lot. She repeated, a sly look in her eyes. He said she's got a good mouth. A faint surge of anger rose in Adrian. What the hell are you talking about? She looked at him half pityingly. Don't you ever talk to your mother about what? The look of pity intensified. Don't you know what they're doing inside? Shut up! He snarled before he could stop himself. Missy scowled. Who are you telling to shut up? She was small but wiry. In a fight, it would be hard to tell who would win. Don't talk about my mother like that. I'm just saying it like it is. The crows had started to gather. She hadn't noticed them yet, or was choosing not to. It was nearly six o'clock. Adrian looked at the cedar tree, checking for signs of life in the black disk of the hollow. Missy followed his gaze. What are you looking at? I have a date, he said. Who is it? You wouldn't know her. She hasn't been here very long. And she lives in that tree. She snickered. That's where we meet. But where does she live? Everywhere. Sparrows joined the crows now, and they inched closer to the pair, silent as tombstones. Missy cast a glance at them and bit her lip. What are all these birds doing here? Adrian didn't answer. I'm talking to you. He didn't answer. Who is this date of yours? It's a secret. He finally said. Why? 
She's not from around here. Why does it matter? How do you plan to keep a secret about someone who doesn't belong here? Who says she doesn't belong here? No one who isn't from around here ever belongs here. Some of the crows had come closer and settled near their feet. Missy shrank back. Ugh, get away! Adrian bent a finger and ran it along the head of the nearest crow. It looked up at him, eyes like marbles. His finger trailed down to the tip of its beak, which parted slowly and closed around his fingertip. The gesture was almost intimate. Stop it! Her voice was thin and frightened. Two other crows came closer, and then two more. Without thinking or pausing, Adrian straightened up and held his arms out. He closed his eyes. They came to him decorously, settling on his arms, shoulders, and head. Some of the sparrows even fastened themselves to his shirt and denim jeans. He watched a crow fly up and land on his head, almost weightless. The claws were a pleasant itch on his scalp. Stop it! Stop it! She was inching away across the lawn. Adrian turned to face her. The birds moving with him. They too turned their gazes toward Missy, who was backing away faster and faster with each second. He nodded almost unconsciously, and they unfurled their wings and cried out in one strident note. He watched Missy run out of the garden until he couldn't hear her footsteps any more. Some minutes later, the man came out with a lit cigarette and looked around. Where's Missy? The birds had retreated by then, apart from a few scattered on the grass. Adrian looked the man in the eye and answered, "She left." Afterward, his mother cornered him. "What did you do to her?" He looked at her and said nothing. Her father said he had to go look for her, that she had run off. What did you do? At that moment, her phone rang. The piercing blue screen lit up on the marble counter. The voice was loud enough for Adrian to recognize it as the man's. Missy is in shock and has been unable to keep anything down. Adrian apparently set a flock of birds on her. Was this his idea of a joke? His mother's hair had come down. The stringy brown waves she always kept scraped back in a bun, threads of silver were visible at the temples. Behind her, the kettle on the stove was whistling louder every second. He met her gaze without flinching. Not even when she put the phone down, moved towards the stove, and grasped the kettle with whitened knuckles. It continued to scream, fainter yet shriller, as she tilted it over a waiting cup. There was a splash; hot water dripped off the edge of her hand. But it was only after she had filled the cup and replaced the kettle on the stove that she raised her hand to suck silently, stonily, on the burn. By the time Adrian went back outside, the sun was almost gone. He whispered softly and waited with his hand outstretched as Hazel crept out of the hole in the tree and hopped on. There was hurt in her eyes, though tempered with understanding. When he stroked the back of her head with his forefinger, she raised her beak and nibbled the tip. The other birds were closer this time, ringing around him like guards. He looked at them, trying to read their eyes and their wings. He looked back at Hazel. Her beak was a bolt of fire in the dark. Why? He found himself wondering. Why were they attracted to him? Why all these years? He returned Hazel to the hollow and picked his way through the crows back to his house. As he approached the house, he saw his mother watching him through the window from the upstairs landing. They locked gazes, 
until she turned abruptly and disappeared. The next day, Adrian was confronted at the breakfast table by Miss Janice. I've decided you should take extra piano lessons for the rest of the summer, his mother said, her voice clipped. Miss Janice chewed at a piece of toast and said nothing. Adrian looked down at his bacon and eggs. The yolks were trembling, barely cooked, on the verge of spilling out. He reached for the pepper shaker and aimed it over the eggs and shook once, twice, thrice. Black specks rained upon the yellow and white, almost entirely coating parts of the eggs. Some of the pepper went up his nose, and he choked back a sneeze, gripping his fork and knife. He ate it all. Adrian, play Chopin's second nocturne. The keys leapt up at him, sticks of black and white that made sounds without knowing how. There was a scratch on the lid he hadn't noticed before almost six inches long and jagged. Chopin's second. Simple enough if you nailed the rhythm. Position the hands, be flat above middle C. Begin. Slower, Adrian. One, two, three. One, two, three. Long, drawn out like pulling taffy. Wrong note. Try again from the top. One, two, three. One, two, three. Adrian, I said go slower. He looked out through the window. The lawn was empty. In his pocket, a seeded bread slice shifted. Hazel would be looking out from the hollow in the tree and missing the bread, or him, or both. Adrian? He looked at the sheet music. Nowhere was it written to go slower. He had only Miss Janice's word for it. Chopin might say differently. So, for that matter, might his mother. And Miss Janice worshipped his mother. So did the town committee and the rest of the town. His mother, the piano prodigy, with fingers light as air, light as birds flying. Adrian! His hands had frozen on the wrong chord, the resultant note still echoing crassly. He turned in his seat to look at her. What if I told you my mother thinks you suck, Janice? She was plain, poor, and past her thirties, all things that made her unable to love herself. She got up without a word and exited the room, her knuckles white from clutching the handle of her cloth bag, drooping with things that would always stay her secret. The front door opened and shut. Rising slowly, Adrian lowered the piano lid and put the book of sheet music away on a high shelf. He stepped through the French doors that opened out into the garden, one hand at the ready in his pocket. He stood at the cedar tree and whispered for Hazel. She did not come out. He wasn't afraid, yet. She could have flapped out and up into the thick of the tree's leaves, just for kicks. He pulled himself up the trunk and sat on the first branch, looking around and above, pushing leaves aside in handfuls to check if her yellow head was hidden behind them. He did the same thing from a higher branch, and then a higher one. The top of the tree was unexpectedly bald. The few leaves were wrinkled and more brown than green. He made his way down, and then up each of the other trees in the yard. He crawled into the south end of the hedge and emerged from the north end, 
spotted with blood and speckled with drop-sized leaves. Finally, he went into the kitchen and confronted his mother. Where is Hazel? Practice done already, Adrian? She said, without looking at him. She was peeling potatoes by the sink, her fingers working smoothly, almost musically. Where is Hazel? He asked again, louder. She put the knife down and met his eyes. I put it in a box and took it out to the dump. I took a stone and smashed its head in first. It's dead. Are you satisfied? She was not worth responding to. The dump was two streets away from theirs in a cul-de-sac between abandoned houses that had long become part of the landscape, blackened over, crumbling and caked with moss. Adrian spotted the box right on top of the heap next to a chocolate wrapper and a dented cola tin. A single feather had fallen just below, brown and white and stippled with black dots. It was a fine day to be out, and many of the townsfolk were. Young and old, they passed him, eyes looking straight ahead or into their phones. He saw the pastor's wife across the road, and she smiled. Say hi to your mum for me, she called after him. He passed the field behind the school with its empty goalposts. Soon it would be football season, and they could practice in preparation for the matches with neighbouring schools. Beside the field was the brick wall students smoked pot behind. Posters advertised a new X-Men film. Wolverine sneered out at the world, stretched over four by three feet of glossy paper, replicated a dozen times. He walked past the flower garden, with its profusion of scent and humming sound, past the bus stop, with its clutch of tourist shops, and down to the lake, a sheet of green and blue. Lying flat on the grass alongside the lake, Adrian watched the sky progress from powder blue to cerulean, to lavender-streaked blue, to lavender-streaked purple, to orange and gold, to red and gold. To red, flame-like and cloud-mixed, the sun a stainless yellow in its midst. On instinct, his hand dug into his pocket, and he drew out the bread slice, wadded up now and shedding seeds. He held it up to the sky for the yellow head to reach down and dine. And only then did it well up, boulder-like, squeezed from deep within himself. When he cried, it was for Hazel. But it was also for the affinity, if there had been one at all, that had failed him when he had needed it the most. He was ready to burst with the futility of it all. But his body was reacting now, holding him fast to where he lay and speaking to him. Don't give in. Don't disgorge it all at once. Let it seep out in doses. And above all, breathe. Breathe until all you're aware of is the pulse of your chest and the thread of life that binds you to where you must tread until the call comes through and you can finally fly home. The road he took home was the longer one, through the town square and past the church from which a voice ensued muffled and magnified, urging listeners to get baptised, if they hadn't already. At the corner of his street, a flock of crows was lined up, looking at him. 
He took half a step toward them, then turned away and walked towards the house, and the smell of supper. Behind him, the crows waited only a moment longer before they spread their wings, gliding away through the sky in near-perfect silence as the sun dipped out of sight. This story is copyright 2021 by Deya Bhattacharya. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.